But we're looking at the life of Jesus, his time on the earth as a man, most specifically the three years he spent on the earth ministering to people, performing miracles, telling us what life is about, and telling us about who he is. The life of Jesus, as you may know, is documented in four books we find in the Bible. These four books are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were three disciples who really did life with Jesus while he was teaching and ministering on the earth. Luke was a physician and also a historian who lived around the same time and wrote his gospel as a researched historical factual document on the life of Jesus. And so today we're going to be in chapter 19 of the gospel of Luke. And I say this every week, you don't have to agree with what I say today. We're going to do our best to let the Bible say what it says, not what we want it to say. But if you don't like it, you don't think it's true for any reason, then I want to encourage you to pursue truth for yourself. Go read it. Go research it. Because if we're going to take truth seriously, we can't just dismiss it when we don't like the way it sounds or how it makes us feel. We have to be concerned with the question, is it True. That's what it means to be a genuine seeker. And we believe there's nothing more important in life than the truth. Nothing. Last week we saw a wonderful example of how we should respond to Jesus. When we saw him heal a couple of blind men and saw at least one of them, whose name was Bartimaeus, leave everything and follow after Jesus, being full of joy over being made whole in body and in spirit. This week Jesus is going to encounter a wealthy man, much like he did a few weeks ago in the story of the rich young ruler. Only this time, the wealthy man is going to respond very, very differently. Today we're gonna see what it looks like when someone loves Jesus more than wealth, more than their stuff. So let's jump in. We're gonna be in Luke 19, we'll begin in verse one. It says, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. So now Jesus is leaving Jericho, the new Jericho as we discussed last week, and heading toward Jerusalem for the feast of Passover where he himself will be offered as the sacrifice for your sins and mine, the lamb of God that was slain. Verse two, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, underline chief tax collector, and he was rich, underline rich. In the original language, the name Zacchaeus means we little man, as some of you may know. Not really, that's a song that we sung in church as small children if you grew up with that. You may recall the Jews hated tax collectors. They were considered traitors and it was widely held that they couldn't even go to heaven because even God hated tax collectors. So you have to remember back then, they didn't have the same reverence for tax officials that we have today. The the reason being that tax collectors in Israel were all Jewish and had, in essence, sold out their own people to work as employees of the Roman Empire. And what the Romans did is they divided up the territory of Israel into local areas, bigger cities and regions, and then Jews could bid for the tax franchise for that area. And what you would do if you were granted the tax franchise is Rome would give you a figure and they would say, you have to collect this much money from your region. And you can do the math however you want. You can divide that number up between all the people there. You can do it based on their income. You can collect a flat amount, a percentage, whatever you want to do. But here's the kicker. Only Rome and the person who owned that tax franchise knew what that figure was. And so that person, that tax collector, was free to tell people that they owed taxes to Rome 
to the tune of whatever amount he deemed necessary. And this meant that tax collectors could easily charge more than Rome was actually asking for and keep the difference. All Rome cared about is that they got their money and they didn't have to deal with the Jewish people. There was some Jewish guy running a tax franchise who'd do that for them. So think with me and imagine if you owned the tax franchise for the Tri-Cities, just think if all you did was tack on an extra $100 every year to everyone's property taxes. Can you imagine the amount of money that we're talking about that you would bring in every year? Now imagine if it was $200 or $300. So you see, when we say Zacchaeus was rich, we're talking about a level of wealth far more excessive than most of us grew up understanding when we were in the church. He's not just well off, he's one of the wealthiest men in the country because he's a chief tax collector. He even has other guys working underneath him. In verse three it says, and he sought to see who Jesus was. Underline that, he sought to see who Jesus was. And this is the key to everything. Because as messed up as he is, Zacchaeus is a true seeker. He doesn't have an agenda. He doesn't even have a question for Jesus. He just wants to know who Jesus is. This is one of the things about where we live that drives me absolutely crazy is the number of people I bump into who will say, I'm a spiritual seeker. Oh yeah, I'm a seeker, I'm I'm a pursuer of truth. But I find that the problem is most of the time they're not actually doing any seeking. Seeking is a verb. They're just waiting around for bits of philosophy that confirm what they would like to believe is true. But they're not actually seeking the truth. They're not actually doing anything because they're not really prepared to respond to what they might find. Zacchaeus, you see, he was for real. He was a real seeker. He had no agenda. He just wanted to know who Jesus was. He sought to see who Jesus was, and it says, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Here's the deal, he's short, he can't see over the crowd, and quite frankly, no one's gonna let him through because they all hate his guts. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, Make haste, just means hurry, and come down for, and then underline this, today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, underline he made haste, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Underline received him joyfully. But when they saw it, the crowd, they all complained saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Underline son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So let's unpack this, because there's some wonderful things for us to take note of in Zacchaeus' response to Jesus. And I love the fact that I could just say that because Zacchaeus is somebody who was hated and despised by pretty much everyone around him. They didn't even think he could ever get to heaven and yet here he is in our Bibles as an example of how we should respond to Jesus. I just love the way the Lord works. I love what he does with individual lives. There's nobody like him. 
In verse 5, Jesus gives the wonderful invitation, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And you want to make a note of this in your Bibles. The word that's translated stay is really the word abide. That's what it is in the original language. It means to remain, not to depart, to continue to be present, to be held, kept continually, to remain as one in reference to a state or condition. You see, it's very different to what many of us were taught in Sunday school if you grew up in the church. We were taught Jesus just wanted to come over for a meal, come over for tea. But he isn't saying that. He's saying, I need to come into your life, Zacchaeus, and I need to stay there and it needs to happen today. And despite the fact this is the only interaction Zacchaeus has ever had with Jesus, his spirit is so moved by Jesus that he recognizes somehow in the depths of his spirit that this Jesus is someone he absolutely must say yes to or he'll regret it for the rest of his life. Make a note of this on your outlines. Jesus tells Zacchaeus he must be invited into his life Today, he tells him he must be invited into his life today. Pick up on that word today. Jesus himself is telling Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, this matter is urgent. You must respond right now. Do you remember what we talked about last week? Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus in part because he wouldn't stop calling out to Jesus even when the crowd told him to shut up. We now know that that was the only opportunity Bartimaeus would have to be healed by Jesus. Jesus would never again walk that way past that road again. He'd be crucified, would raise from the dead, and would return to heaven. He wouldn't walk that way again. It was his only chance. And this is Zacchaeus' moment, and Jesus knows it. He's never going to pass this way again. And so he says to Zacchaeus, this is your moment. You must respond right Now, and last week we made the point that we must respond when we sense Jesus pulling on our hearts, calling us to him, calling us to respond because we don't know if we'll ever get another chance. We don't know. That's a precious moment. Remember what we read today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Zacchaeus doesn't stay up in the tree and say, you know, give me a minute, Jesus, to process all this. I need to think about what having you come into my life will cost me. I need to decide if I'm ready or not. I need need to weigh this. He's so thrilled, he's so glad that Jesus wants to come into his life that he responds immediately without any thought toward what it may cost him. It's simply not part of what he's considering. And that's because when you recognize who Jesus really is, when your eyes are open to who he is, the cost becomes irrelevant. Whatever it is, He's worth it. Whatever it is, it's a price you'd pay a thousand times over because Jesus is just that good. He's just that good. Take a look at verse seven again, and I want to point something out. While we're here, I want to point out that Zacchaeus was clearly interested in giving his life over to Jesus, inviting him in. And I simply say that because you're going to hear people, you're going to hear Christians say things like, Jesus always hung out with prostitutes and people who were in scandalous, awful sins. So we should make them feel welcome by not talking about things like sin or repentance or giving your life over to Jesus. And firstly, Jesus didn't always hang out with prostitutes and scandalous sinners. Most of the time, he hung out with his disciples, his family, 
and he'd visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. That's who he hung out with most of the time. When he hung out with prostitutes and people who were heavy into scandalous sins, it was because they were seriously interested in learning about who he was and what he had to say. And when they found out, they were interested in giving their lives over to him. You see, it's not that Jesus prefers scandalous people to non-scandalous people. It's simply that Jesus goes wherever he's wanted. It's that simple. If you want to know Jesus more and you've never broken a law in your life, he'll gladly meet with you. If you've broken every law in the books, but you are genuinely interested in knowing Jesus, he'll meet with you too. Zacchaeus is clearly interested in genuinely knowing Jesus and responding to him. And that's why Jesus invites himself over. Not because Zacchaeus is a sinner, but because he is a sinner who knows he's a sinner and is interested in finding out if there's really a way for him to have a relationship with God if he really can start over, if he really can be forgiven, if he really can be loved. That's why Jesus goes there. You may recall in the previous chapter, Luke 18, the rich young ruler had turned away from Jesus and Jesus had told his disciples, listen guys, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You'll recall the disciples respond in amazement and say, well then who can be saved? And Jesus says, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And just a few days later, in the very next chapter, here's Zacchaeus to prove that exact point. And I love that. And then we see in verse eight that Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all he had and give it to the poor. Jesus doesn't tell Zacchaeus to do anything with his wealth. And yet Zacchaeus says, I give half of my goods to the poor and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. You see, in Zacchaeus' life, Wealth wasn't going to get between him and a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus doesn't need to deal with that issue. In the rich young ruler's life, wealth was always going to be more of a priority than a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus had to try and break him of that. It's not money that's evil, it's the love of money that's evil. It's not wealth that's wrong. It's trusting in wealth that's wrong. You see, Zacchaeus loved and trusted Jesus more than he loved and trusted money. And it's easy when we hear something like this to think, oh, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Well, two quick things. You're in the wealthiest 1% of people on the planet. Everyone in this room, you're in the wealthiest 1% of people on the planet. And it's just as easy for any of us to obsess over and trust in money like the rich young ruler did. Even if you consider yourself poor, it's just as easy to obsess over money because when you don't have it, you get to the place where you think, if I just had more of it, all my problems would be solved. I don't need God. God's not the answer to my problems. What I need is money. And if I had money, then everything would be better in my life. Just as easy to obsess over money. But secondly, there's a principle revealed here that I think it's worth mentioning. It's this, we don't all struggle with the same sins and temptations. Zacchaeus didn't have the same issues with wealth that the rich young ruler did. And we've all got different issues, different sins, different temptations we struggle with. And make a note of this. So God's work of sanctification in our lives is individual. It's individual. And if you don't know what sanctification is, sanctification is simply the process every believer goes through from the moment we give our lives to Jesus to the moment we arrive in his presence. It's the process of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to make us more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. And that process looks different in every single one of our lives. 
This means that the Lord may ask you to do something radical in your life that he won't ask the person sitting next to you in church today to do because it's not an issue for them. There's no wisdom in comparing our walk with Jesus to somebody else's because we're different, we're individuals. So when the Lord puts a conviction on your heart, on your life, to change something in your life, guess what? It's for your life. It's for your life. It's not for us to stand up and then expect everyone else to do the same thing because they might not have the same issue. Likewise, if someone else is doing something radical but you're not really feeling a conviction about it, that's okay. You need to respond to what the Holy Spirit's asking you to do. And just to be clear, we're not talking about anything that the Bible is crystal clear about. We're not talking about saying, well, I don't have a conviction that murder is wrong. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those gray areas, those action steps and commands that aren't actually in the Bible but the Holy Spirit will sometimes call us to take as individuals. And the best example is the rich young ruler because think about it, nowhere in the Bible does it say if you wanna follow after Jesus, you have to sell all you have and give it to the poor. That's not a command anywhere in scripture. That's a specific instruction given to the rich young ruler and it wasn't given to anybody else. It wasn't even given to Zacchaeus. Not an issue for Zacchaeus, so he doesn't get that instruction. Our sanctification is individual. One believer can have a glass of wine, another one can't. Why? Because we're not the same. We have different issues, different strengths, different weaknesses, and we don't put our individual convictions on other people as burdens. As the Apostle Paul said, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That's what it means. It means you stand before God and you do what the Lord is telling you to do. You be faithful to that and be fully convinced that you're being faithful to that. I've shared this before, but an example I had is I had a, a couple email me and they were just having first a conviction about celebrating Halloween. I said, that's fine, you stick with your conviction. And then they got back to me and said, well, now we're having a conviction about celebrating Christmas because we found out about the ancient pagan origins of that. And I said, well, that's yeah, fine, you follow uh, what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. And then they said, yeah, but we're also thinking we can't stay at the church that we're at right now uh, because the pastor in the church won't get behind us and tell the rest of the church that they shouldn't celebrate Christmas. And uh, so I emailed them back and I, I just told them, I said, hey, do you know that we use the Greco-Roman calendar and more than half of the months that we use in the year are named after Roman gods? And so my question to you is, if you're so sincere and devout about this, are you going to now not recognize the Greco-Roman calendar and start using other names for the months of the year lest you unintentionally acknowledge and celebrate pagan Roman spiritual practices? And the answer is, of course, they're not gonna do that. But I shared that with them just to make the point, you have a conviction about this one thing from the Lord. You be accountable to that. But the Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to celebrate Christmas, so you can't put that on anybody else. The work of God in our lives is individual. It looks different in each life. Verse eight also reveals something that we don't talk about a whole lot, but this is something big we need to hit on. Write this down and then we'll unpack it. Restitution is part of repentance. Restitution is part of repentance. We see Zacchaeus immediately, intrinsically, understand that he needs to do what he can to make things right with those he's wronged in his life. 
And he says, if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus doesn't call him a liar. Jesus doesn't say, I know you're excited right now and the emotions are high, but you know, don't say things that you're not gonna follow through on. And Jesus doesn't say you don't need to do that. So I think we can safely assume that Zacchaeus actually followed through and, and did that. Can you imagine how awkward that must have been for, for him to go individually and knock on doors and say, hey, friend, so I've been ripping you off for the past eight years, overcharging you and stealing from you, and I'm here to pay you back fourfold. Do you have any idea how many people would have just slammed the door in his face? How many people would have spat at him and then slammed the door in his face? It would not have been easy, but it was necessary. It was necessary for Zacchaeus, and I would suggest that it's necessary for us. I would suggest that's what the Lord's saying to us today. Here's why. Make some notes here on your outline. We're gonna go through four reasons. Sin always has power when it's kept hidden. Write that down. Sin always has power when it's kept hidden and in the dark. It has the power to shame us and to overwhelm us with guilt. When we bring our sin into the light and confess, yes, I did this, it was wrong, I'm sorry. Sin loses its power and we gain greater freedom. That's why even the 12-step program for any addiction includes steps where you get everything out in confession and then you do your best to make amends with those you've wronged. That means calling people who live in places far away from you that you wronged 17 years ago but you still remember it. And do you know why they do that in the 12-step program? They do it because those things that aren't dealt with, that aren't confessed, generate shame and guilt, and shame and guilt drive addicts back to their addiction, back to drinking, back to drugs, the shame and the guilt. But when that's pulled out and you say, I, I did this, and people know, and you realize that the world doesn't end, that people still love you, that God still loves you, man, that stuff loses its power. The law only required fourfold restitution when an animal was stolen and killed. So Zacchaeus, what he's doing is under the law, he's judging himself as the lowest form of thief that there is. He's just so happy to be forgiven by Jesus that he's able to be honest about how much he needs to be forgiven from. And that's why he's so overwhelmed. He has this view of himself that's accurate. He's not in denial thinking he's a good man. He's like, I know I've been a piece of trash wronging people for years. And so when Jesus says, hey, you're, you're forgiven. I, I wanna come into your life. He's just so overwhelmed with gratitude by that that he's driven to action. Secondly, being confronted with the fallout of our sin exposes the deception that we're not hurting anybody. Being confronted with the fallout of our sin exposes the deception that we're not hurting anybody. Man, is that one of the great deceptions that we deceive ourselves with when it comes to sin. I'm not hurting anybody. This is just me. This is just me doing something wrong. It doesn't affect anyone else. When we have to confess our sin to somebody else or go make amends, we're reminded, hey, there's a fallout to sin. It affects other people. And you tend to remember that the next time you're tempted. And there's not that deception anymore that no one is being hurt. Guys, let me give one really specific example. Some of you will not like me for doing this. If you're a guy and you have accountability software on your computer to keep you from looking at things online that you shouldn't look at, 
most common attitude that I run into among men is like, yeah, I've got accountability partners who are my bros. Why isn't it your wife? And you know what the number one reason is? We don't want to deal with the fallout of our sin if we get caught. Sometimes the very best thing that we can do is be confronted with what our sin actually does. And if you're a guy that's struggling with that, I would encourage you to make your wife your accountability partner that gets your reports. Because when you have to look into her face when she's crying over what you've done, that's going to have an impact on you and you're not going to be able to pretend that this doesn't have a price to it. It's part of the reason for confession. Thirdly, confessing and taking responsibility for our sins reveals we're more concerned about being right with the Lord than escaping the consequences of our sins. We're more concerned about being right with the Lord than escaping the consequences of our sins. I won't name the person, but there's a a celebrity who had a, a very sort of public turn to Christ and is now very public about his faith, but there's something highly criminal in his past that he's never fully answered or explained or confessed to. And there's just something about that that tends to taint the witness of someone who says, I've given my life over to Jesus, and I now live for him, and he's in charge of my life, except for those areas where confession might cost me going to prison. And I had this crystallized so much, I've shared this before too, and I was working at my last church, there was a gentleman who had been arrested and caught exposing himself to a woman who was driving past him in a van and he didn't know that there was a little girl in the back seat and she saw it and he got arrested and charged with a sex crime and, and I had to talk to him on behalf of the church and, and work something out because we can't have someone that we know is under investigation for a sex crime hanging around the church lobby where their children. And I talked with him and I asked him, so what happened? Just tell me the truth. And he said, I can't discuss that with you under my lawyer's advice. And I had to tell him, forget your lawyer. This is God, what's right and what's wrong, sin and confession. And you're saying, I refuse to acknowledge what I did. I refuse to do that. And, and I told him, I said, the only reason that you're not willing to talk to me about it is because you're planning on fighting this. If you were planning on confessing, you'd, you'd be free to tell me right now. This means you're, you're planning on making that woman stand up there and painting her as a liar so that you can get off this when you know that you did this. And there's only one response for a Christian and it's repentance, owning your sin, throwing yourself at the mercy of God and the court. And he didn't take the advice and he went to prison for two years for it. But when we're really concerned about being right with the Lord, we don't try and escape the consequences of our sin. We're more troubled by the fact that we're not right with God than we are by what might happen to us. And so we confess, we own our sin, we do what we can to make it right because the relief that comes from knowing I'm right with God is what we want more than anything else. And then fourthly, our attempts at restitution testify to the inward change Jesus has brought about in us. It testifies to the inward change Jesus has brought about in us. If you've wronged someone before you became a believer or even after, and you've never gone back to them to try and make it right, here's what I know. They're not fully convinced your faith is real. They're not fully convinced your faith is real because they know you never came back and tried to fix that and whatever your faith is, whatever this Jesus is, it didn't change you enough to make you come back and apologize. But when you humble yourself, you apologize and you try to make things right when any normal person wouldn't unless they were forced to, 
There's no other explanation other than something has changed deep within you. You're not who you used to be. And let me just be real clear here. If this is you and the Lord is laying someone on your heart right now, then you need to seek them out, humble yourself, apologize, and ask forgiveness. You might not be there yet. You might be like, I can't do that. But here's what I know. You've seen it in his word now and it's gonna bug you until you do it. And that's really just my job. As long as I can make sure you're bugged by the truth until you do it, then that's a good thing. And the Holy Spirit is gonna keep bringing it up until you take care of it. When you do, I promise you'll be so glad that you did. Even if they're just mad at you and hang up the phone on you or walk away from you, you're gonna be so glad because you're gonna be set free from that guilt and that shame. That's what God wants for you. He doesn't want you in bondage to anything. Well, in verse nine, Jesus makes it clear that Zacchaeus was saved that day, that very day. Now, was it what Zacchaeus did that saved him? Well, no. What Zacchaeus did was a result of him being saved. The Bible calls it fruit, the byproduct of being saved. Write this down. It didn't earn him salvation, but it did prove his salvation. It didn't earn him salvation, but it did prove his salvation. Remember what James famously says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, we're saved by faith, but faith always produces real works, concrete actions that we can see that are measurable. And when Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, he's placing his stamp of approval not on Zacchaeus' works, but on Zacchaeus' faith. Because in Galatians, the apostle Paul explains the term to us when he says, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So when Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, he's saying he's the real deal. His faith is real. He is saved. And over the past several studies, there's a theme emerging in this particular portion of the ministry of Jesus about the last three weeks worth of stuff we've looked at and today. And I think it's worth pointing out two major things that keep coming up. I keep seeing these. Firstly is the absolute necessity of you and I as individuals recognizing who Jesus is. It is absolutely necessary that we recognize he is God. He is truth. He's the one holding the universe. He's our only hope. He's the reason we were created. It is absolutely necessary that we recognize who he is, especially in that moment when he reveals it to us and calls us to respond. But secondly, there's this theme of not allowing anybody to stop us from getting to Jesus. Do you remember the widow who was not discouraged by the judge who wouldn't hear her but kept persisting to get justice? You remember the tax collector who went to the temple to pray and was mocked by the pompous prayers of the Pharisee? The tax collector still prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't turn and leave because he was discouraged or embarrassed. He stayed and prayed. And Jesus said, he went away justified. Do you remember the parents that brought their children to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and bless them even though the disciples tried to shoo them away? Do you remember blind Bartimaeus who was healed by Jesus outside of Jericho just last week? He cried out for healing and when the crowd told him to be quiet, he cried even louder. And then today we see Zacchaeus who couldn't see over the crowd, couldn't get through the crowd, so he ran ahead of where Jesus was going and climbed a tree to make sure he would see him. It was an undignified thing for a man of his social stature to do, but he did it anyway. It is so easy to blame other people for our failure to follow Jesus. 
It's easy to say, you know, I knew some Christians one time and they turned out to be real jerks. Or the last church I went to treated me really badly and wasn't there when I needed them. Or, you know, the nicest people I know aren't Christians. I like Jesus, I just don't like his followers. That's what Gandhi said. But over the past few studies, Jesus has shown us desperate people seeking Jesus for healing and wholeness. Not seeking followers of Jesus, but seeking Jesus. And the message seems to be that we should do the same and not allow any hindrances to stop us from getting to Jesus. Because guess what? Wherever you go in the world, there's this amazing phenomenon that takes place. Whatever church you go to, you will find that it is made up of people. Every culture, every language, every nation, the church is made up of people. And wherever there are people, there will be people with issues. Anywhere you go, just like you've got issues. The real question is, are you seeking Jesus? Are you seeking Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then he promises you'll find him and you'll never be disappointed. But if you're seeking people who are the perfect representation of Jesus or a church that perfectly represents Jesus, you're never gonna find it, ever. The best church you'll ever find is one that will join with you in crying out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I hope you found that in this church. Not perfect people, but a group of people who've recognized that we're all in desperate need of Jesus. We're all in desperate need of him, wherever we are in our walk. And we're all being made whole by him, slowly but surely. And we've made the decision to follow him. No obstacle is an excuse. No negative experience with a church or a believer or a group of believers is an excuse. Not to the Lord. The question is, are you seeking Jesus? If you are, you will find him. And you'll not be disappointed. Write this down. No obstacle can keep us from Jesus unless we allow it to do so. No obstacle can keep us from Jesus unless we allow it to do so. Well, speaking of faith that produces works, verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he, Jesus, spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they, the disciples, the people that are traveling with him, thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. We mentioned this last week. All of those close to Jesus thought they were going to Jerusalem so that right there and then Jesus could take the throne. His kingdom would descend from heaven to earth with power and Jesus would begin to rule over the earth. They thought that was happening in a matter of days. And last week we saw James and John jockeying for position as they tried to get Jesus to promise them good seats in the new kingdom that was gonna come to earth. So Jesus tells them this parable. It's not really for them to think about now. It's something for them to think about after his death and resurrection and return to heaven. When they're having a moment when they're wondering, what are we supposed to do until Jesus returns to earth? Or when the thought crosses their mind, maybe we should just build a compound somewhere and just like wait this thing out. Well, verse 12, therefore, He said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So we called 10 of his servants, underlined servants, delivered to them 10 minahs. A minah was around three months wages for an agricultural worker at that time. So it's a decent sum of money. And he said to them, and then underline this, 
do business till I come. Do business till I come, till I return. Verse 14, but his citizens, underline citizens, so this is not the servants, but the citizens of the land, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, and then underline this, we will not have this man to reign over us. Less than a week's time, the crowd would cry the same thing when Pilate asks them, shall I crucify your king? They will reply, we will have no king, but Caesar will not have this man reign over us. Verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, not if, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, underline servants, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your manah has earned 10 manahs. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, underline faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities, underline 10 cities. And the second came saying, master, your manah has earned five manahs. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, master, here is your manah, which I have, underline, kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. That means a harsh man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he, the master, said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. Underline wicked. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? You see, the Lord is not harsh, but this man was claiming that as his excuse. So the nobleman says, well, then I'll judge you based on your own logic. Let's assume that I am a harsh man. If you really were afraid of me, you wouldn't have dared to come before me without having at least earned interest. If you were really afraid of me but were too lazy to work, you would have at least put it in the bank so that there would be interest. Verse 24, and he, the master, said to those who stood by, take the manah from him and give it to one who has 10 manahs. But they said to him, master, he has 10 manahs. What about equality, they complain. Verse 26, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, given more. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Who said I would distribute rewards equally? Verse 27, but bring here those enemies, underline enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So let's break this down and see what the Lord wants to say to us, his disciples, through this teaching. So fairly obviously, the nobleman, the master, is Jesus. And he wasn't going to Jerusalem to receive a kingdom. He would, in fact, be leaving the earth to receive his kingdom and we will indeed return with him in the future when he brings that kingdom to the earth for what's known as the millennium, a thousand years when Jesus will reign on the earth and we will reign with him. The servants are believers and the citizens of the land are non-believers. You might remember in Revelation they're called earth dwellers. Here they're those who belong to the world. They don't belong to Jesus. They don't wanna be ruled by Jesus. They don't wanna serve Jesus. The servants are those who've chosen to serve Jesus and the citizens are those who've chosen to reject him saying we'll not have this man reign over us. And as we see at the very end of the parable, it's useless to make an enemy of the king of kings. 
there's no way around the fact that the end of all who reject Jesus is destruction. There's no way around that. A lot of people confuse this parable with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, but there's a key difference. In the parable of the talents, the servants receive differing amounts of money. Here in the parable of the manas, they all receive the same amount. And so for that reason, we recognize the parable of the talents is about the fact that some of us are more talented in specific areas, some are more gifted in other areas, but we will be judged on what we did with what we had. We won't be compared to anybody else. So this parable is about something we all receive the same amount of as every other believer. So it can't be about gifts, can't be about abilities, can't be about resources. What might it be? Well, I like the way the Apostle Paul says it. I put it on your outlines. In Ephesians 4, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, we've all been saved by the same gospel through the same God who dwells in each of us in the form of the same Holy Spirit. So this parable is about what we do in this life with the gift of our salvation, with the gift of our faith, the gift of our faith. This parable is about rewards. It's not about salvation. It's not about whether or not you can lose your salvation. It's about what the Lord expects us to be doing with our lives once we give our lives to him while we wait and long for his coming. You're saved, but what are you gonna do with the faith you've been given? What are you gonna do with the new life you've been given? And what does he say to us, his servants, in verse 13? He says, do business till I come. Do business till I come. I love that. This is why we don't build a compound. This is why the goal of our life is not to accumulate enough money that we can drop out of life and go live somewhere remote and beautiful and not have to deal with anybody. As wonderful as that sounds, we have a master who said, do business till I come. When Jesus comes for his church, he doesn't want to find us staring up to the sky. He wants to find us doing the work of a servant, his servant. In Acts 1, it describes Jesus' ascension. This is the moment where at the end of his ministry, Jesus returns to heaven. And just let me read it to you in Acts 1. It says, while they watched the disciples, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are angels. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, guys, you're not gonna miss it when he comes back. You're not gonna miss it. In the meantime, you've got work to do. Stop looking at the clouds. And in verse 15, we're reminded of a point that's simple but worth mentioning. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. It's not an if, it's a when. And he wants his servants to know that. And nobody is going to miss it when his kingdom comes. No one on the earth is gonna miss it because according to this parable, when his kingdom comes, there's going to be significant rewards for his servants, like ruling over cities. Literally, we're gonna rule and reign with him when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. So that's gonna be something that we're gonna notice. 
We're gonna notice when all authority on earth is transferred from a political system into the hands of redeemed believers. And I think we're also gonna notice when Jesus' enemies are completely destroyed. I think we're gonna notice that. Have those things happened? They have not happened. When you look around you, are those things happening? No, they're not happening. We're not experiencing a wave of political powers being toppled so that righteous believers are now ruling over countries and cities. That's not happening. So when you hear a teaching that claims that the kingdom of God is actively coming to earth right now, you need to know that's not true. The kingdom coming will be a dramatic, earth-altering, unmistakable event. No one's going to be confused about what is happening when the kingdom comes. But the idea that the kingdom is coming right now, let me just be honest, requires you to basically ignore everything that's happening in the world and the general disastrous direction that the world is moving in more and more rapidly every day. When the kingdom comes, no one's going to be confused about it. In verse 17, Jesus commends the first servant, and I really want us to catch the contrast Jesus wants us to see. Check it out. It says, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. I had you underline faithful in a very little. Have authority over 10 cities, underline 10 cities. Here's the idea. When the rewards of the millennium, the rewards of eternity are revealed and handed out, we're all gonna go, what? I get that? For, for my life, like my little life, like what I did, the rewards are gonna be so glorious, so mind-blowing that even those precious saints who were martyred, were murdered for their faith in Jesus are going to say, wow, I get that just for dying for you. Just for dying for you? It really will be that Amazing, and Jesus wants us to know, brothers, sisters, if you could see the rewards I have planned for you, you would never again have the thought, wow, he's asking a lot. You would never again think to yourself, man, that's a big sacrifice the Lord is asking of me. We're called to live our lives in such a way that we too might one day hear the master say, well done, good servant because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. Write this down, all the sacrifices we make to follow Jesus will seem very little when our eternal rewards are revealed. They'll seem very little when our eternal rewards are revealed. And then there's the one servant, he's a servant, so we know he's still saved, and he comes to the nobleman and says, hey, I know you're a harsh man. I was afraid of you, that's why I hid my mana away and..." Did nothing with it, hid my faith away. To that servant, the nobleman says, you're full of it, you're full of it. If you were really afraid of me, you would have put it in a bank where it could at least accumulate interest. You see, there's a discrepancy between what you're doing and what you're claiming. So the question is, what's the real reason the servant did nothing with his mana? Well, I think it's left intentionally vague, on purpose, by the Holy Spirit, so that we can put our own preferred excuses in there and have it revealed that they're not valid. Don't think the master's really returning one day? He will. Don't think there'll really be rewards handed out one day? There will. Don't think you'll care about those rewards? You will. 
Over the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus explain to his disciples that everyone who places their faith in Jesus is saved the same way, going to the same heaven, and yet in eternity, in the millennium, in that heaven, the rewards that are handed out will not be the same. Everyone will not be equal in heaven. Those rewards are gonna be based on how faithful we were with the gift of faith that we received from the Lord, what we did with it. You know, we're really going to stand before the Lord one day. There's not gonna be the big video screen. It's not gonna be a shame thing. I think it's gonna be a a one-on-one conversation where Jesus is just gonna say, hey, let's have a conversation. Tell me about your life. Tell me what you did. Tell me what you did with the new life I gave you, the faith that I gave you. And yes, our salvation will be secure, but what happens in that conversation will determine the rewards we receive. And so we have to evaluate our lives and ask questions like, what are we doing with the things that we've all received? We've all received a measure of time, 24 hours in a day, and some of us have more demanding jobs than others, but the question's gonna be, what do we do with our time? What did we do with our energy? And, and please hear me, this, this doesn't mean that you need to go work yourself to death go stand with a sandwich board draped over your body that the end is near on the corner of the road and be miserable. No, no, no. sometimes it means resting, but, but here's the point. When we rest, it should be because we believe that's what the Lord wants us to do at that moment. When we work, it should be because that's what we believe the Lord wants us to do at that moment. The question is, am I managing my days with the Lord in mind, with what he would want me to do? Who's the God of my daily activities, God or or me? Am I responding when the Holy Spirit says pray for them or talk to them? And the parable of the menage should, and I think it does, leave us all with the question, how do I make sure that I'm at least earning interest, doing something with what the Lord has entrusted me with? I don't wanna stand before him one day and say, "I, I did nothing, I just kept it in my pocket. And so it's at this point as a pastor that the sermon really begins to write itself because if you're a pastor, You're so excited about this opportunity because I can start listing the things we need to do in life in order to make sure we don't waste our lives. This is a great opportunity for me to say, hey, we need more help in the kids' ministry. We need greeters. And if you want to stand before the Lord one day and know you haven't wasted your life, one way you can do that is by serving in children's ministry. It's It's the perfect chance to recruit for the setup and tear down team in every area we have a need for. And It's a chance to talk about the importance of reading your Bible every day, praying and sharing the gospel, and that's probably where this sermon would have gone a few years ago. But the Lord has taught me something about myself over the last few years. And and you see, even though I love the gospel of grace, I'm drawn over and over again toward a gospel of works. When we talk about serving God, what I wanna naturally do is I wanna flesh that out into action steps, things I can do Boxes that I can check to say, yes, I'm a good Christian. There's gonna be a reward in heaven for me to prove that I love God. But, but in the kingdom of God, write it down. This is your last fill-in. Works don't produce love. Love produces works. Works don't produce love. Love produces works. You see, when you say, man, I wanna end my day having a moment with the Lord. Man, that, that's love. I just want to let the Lord know I love him and I'm thankful before I lay my head down at night. But here's what I want to do all the time, and maybe this is you too. I say, before I go to bed every night, I'm going to spend five minutes in prayer. And now I've put a number on it, and I've got a timer going. 
And that's not what you do with people that you love. You don't sit down with the person you love and say, hey, I just wanted to chat with you for uh, 10 minutes. And the clock starts going. You don't do that because that's not love. That's, That's works. And when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must abide with you, he gave us a huge clue because he sends us and directs our minds to the passage in scripture where that word abide appears more than it does anywhere else in the Bible and it's John chapter 14 where Jesus says things like, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Just again and again and again, Jesus is saying, abide, abide, abide. He says, you can't do anything apart from me. You can't do anything good apart from me. So God has set up our relationship with him so that our good works are fruit. They're the byproduct of our relationship with him, our love for him. And without that relationship, without that love, we can't produce the fruit, we can't produce the works. We know the Bible says this. We know that Galatians describes good works as the fruit of the Spirit, not the work of the Spirit. And we know that when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? He himself said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. There's only one thing that we're ultimately called to work at. One thing that we're called to be great at. It's loving God. That's it. Everything else is fruit. Everything else is a byproduct. The people in this church who serve faithfully and joyfully don't do it because I preached a great message about serving and it was just so convicting that they're still under its effect and that's why they show up to serve. They don't serve because they're scared that the master is returning and he's a harsh man. They do it because in some way they're abiding in a relationship with Jesus and the result of that is a heart that loves the church that loves the people of the church and wants to bless them. It's fruit. And so I don't wanna stand here and tell you to put your time, energy, and discipline into a list of things that you can check off to make sure that you're producing fruit so you don't waste your life. I just wanna repeat the words of Jesus about what is most important in life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's it. Everything else is fruit. That's why it was famously said, love God and do whatever you want. Because if you love God, what you do will be good. It'll be righteous. Love God, love him. I'm gonna wrap up with this and let's be great at loving God. Let's be great at relating to him, at, at talking with him. When there's an opportunity to worship him and thank him, let's take it, not out of legalism, not so we can check the box, I worshiped sincerely at church, but because we love him. And that's what we do, because we love him. We don't take communion 
out of empty ritual. We take it because we love him. We, we want to be connected to him. We want to be great at praising him, great at listening to him, great at sharing with him. Let's be great at that, at, at pressing into a relationship with God. Everything else, everything else will follow that. Everything else. If there's any area of your life where you're struggling, if it's your marriage, if it's a relationship, if it's work, press into God and focus on loving God and it will affect whatever it is that you're dealing with. I promise that's how it works. God's built it to work that way. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We know that the purpose of your spirit working in us is to point us and lead us to Jesus again and again and again. And that Jesus, you lead us to the Father again and again and again. So Father, I pray for any of us for whom our faith may have become a, an empty ritual, a series of boxes that we check to feel like our faith is real. Lord, we wanna know that our faith is real because of the relationship we have with you. We have a God who listens when we speak. We have a God who talks back to us. We have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Father, more than, than any works we could do, at the end of our life, what we would most wanna hear from you is that we loved you, we loved you. And we were great at loving you. So we ask that you would help us to do that, to stir our passion for you all over again, to renew it, Lord God, that we would just be awed by what you do in us, what you've done in each of us, Lord, that you take the worst of the worst, the, the lowest of sinners, and you turn them into examples of your righteousness, your kindness, your goodness. Thank you for the work that you've done in us and the work that you're doing in us and the fact that you've promised you'll finish what you started. Help us to take this coming time and, and just love you and just enjoy you, God, and enjoy the relationship we have with you. What a high privilege, what a high calling, Lord. We love you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.